Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. It had always been my plan to visit the poet's house since I was an awestruck young poet, part of a generation who studied his work for A-levels back in the 1960s. I wrote out his poems, such as Light Breaks Where No Sun Shines in Longhand, to try and capture the magic of his music. Then, a decade later, I discovered in his letters how he saw himself and in terms with which I could easily identify as a Belfast lad, red brick through and through. Here he is, Dylan Thomas, aged 21, writing to his friend and fellow poet Vernon Watkins, describing his life away from his native Swansea, living in Penzance, Cornwall. It's 1936. The out-of-doors is very beautiful, but it's a strange country to me, all scenery and landscape. In place of the magnificent Cornish countryside, the towny Thomas yearns for his Swansea terraced home. I'd rather the bound slope of a suburban hill, the elms, the acacias, rookery nook, curlew avenue, to all these miles of green fields and flowery cliffs, and dull sea going on and on. In its stead, Thomas makes a surprising admission. I'm not a countryman. I stand for, if anything, the Aspidistra, the provincial drive, the morning cafe, the evening pub. And a little later, man made his house to keep the world and the weather out, making his own weathery world inside. Strange words indeed for the world-famous poet of the dramatic Welsh coastlines and hillsides. Or are they? While associated with London during World War II, where he lived and worked, and the various flats and rented accommodation in the home counties he and his Irish wife, Kathleen McNamara, lived in at various times, there are two key locations in Dylan's life. First, his family home in Quindalkin Drive, Swansea, where he was born in October 1914, and Larne on the south side of Carmarthenshire, the setting for his radio play Under Milk Wood. This year marks the 70th anniversary of the play's first performance at the Poetry Centre in New York in May 1953, barely six months before his tragic and untimely death in November that year at the age of 39. It took me the best part of 50 years before I had the good fortune to visit both these places in the company of a good friend, and a good friend to so many Irish writers going back over the same period, editor and literary agent and Welshman Jonathan Williams. It was the best of all possible worlds, as Jonathan knew the lay of the land well. After the ferry crossing from Ross Lair to Fishguard, we headed for the small town of Larne on the River Taff, stayed the night and then took in Condocken Drive before our return to Fishguard. In Larne, Thomas's writing shed remains in place, along with the boathouse the family lived in, overlooking the estuary. Brown's Hotel is still there, where he and Catchleen took their leisure, and the cemetery too, where the poet is buried in a modest plot. I couldn't help but hear his voice as we wandered along the streets and gazed up at sea view 
where he had laid his head on occasion. The stretch of estuary that opened out before us and the local setting of Sir John's Hill was the source of one of Thomas's greatest poems over Sir John's Hill. And nothing would do but to share a couple of pints of ale in Brown's Hotel, the famous portrait of Catchleen and Dillon at her shoulders. Next morning we were on the road to Swansea. It took me a minute or two to adjust to the reality. Was that the park in the rear mirror from the hunchback in the park? The terrace was all so familiar. Small garden in front, the good front room, the living room, the gardens behind, the steep stairs to the bedrooms and bathroom. Dylan's space by the old-style heater, the narrow corridors and hallway, the landing. It was indeed so familiar, I could hardly believe it. And then the intimacies of that life, its boundaries as much as its ebullience, came bursting through in his voice again. At the time of his initial success in the early 1930s, an unheard-of voice, too, capable of sounding like something between a choir and a preacher, breathing not fire and brimstone, but the sheer pleasure in language, breaking like a force of nature and sending shivers through his rapt audiences. No wonder Thomas blew them away in the US with his first reading tour of 1950. He became a rock star before the concept had even been thought of, and it took its toll too, but that's another story. I wavered outside his house momentarily and looked up and down windy steep Condock and Drive. It must have been some stretch walking up and down that hill, but then again he probably didn't notice. He would have had other things on his mind. Remember me, Captain? You're dancing, Williams. I lost my step in Nantucket. I recently published my memoir and while I was writing it I was trying to come up with different ways of telling the story which is a difficult story to tell and this piece sort of came from it and I thought this is actually this is actually a standalone piece it doesn't belong in the book and it's called Teenager. She has plain brown hair and weighs 11 stone which she finds repulsive. In her diaries poetry and drawings and over blue pick pen swirls of horses manes she has written over and over lists of things she must achieve lose weight stop eating get a boyfriend be interesting nothing is enough nothing she can offer is enough nothing she has to give is enough she helps she is afraid she wants to be useful she hovers she hopes she writes gratitude lists she apologizes she says sorry she excuses herself Playing as a child, she had to be urged by adults to take part. One time, a friend's mother overheard her talking to a doll, as if the doll was a real baby. She and the friend's mother made sudden, brief eye contact as the mother smiled her way up the stairs of her home. Shame stung and suffocated, and although she continued playing in that house, she would never let go to that extent again. She would never lose control like that again. And then the time came for parents to stop organising playdates. And then the time came for street playing to stop. 
and although she didn't know it then, one summer day she called into neighbours for the last time. She eventually played her last play in the green, cycled her last cycle home. She makes up fake social activities, so she doesn't look like a loser, even though she isn't a loser and isn't even sure what a loser is anyway. She befriends the outcast, the unpopular, the unwanted, the laughed at, the excluded. She goes on walks with them at lunchtime and feels sorry for them, like she is a charity worker and also grateful, so grateful for them. Her heart aches with empathy and she wishes she wasn't so soft, such a pushover, so weak. She wishes she had a bit of the edge and harshness some of the cool girls have, some of their bite. She will never have their bite. She does have bite. She doesn't realise she has bite. She will get bite eventually. She relinquishes this desire and tries to forge her own identity, but finds it hard to know who she is. She has never gotten to know herself. She doesn't know how to begin. The who of her has never been heard. The sight of her has never been seen. She maintains a facade that keeps her safe. She orchestrates, she shows off, she humble brags, she overachieves, she pretends, and she aches, she aches, and she works hard, she does her best. She is doing her best and always feels that she is doing her worst. She is funny and puts herself down, but in a funny way, so it's okay. She carries inexplicable guilt and the weight of it takes the lightness out of her eyes. She takes the blame for unearned misdemeanours in order to alleviate this guilt. She doesn't know why she does that. Her friends are baffled, so she makes out like she is a martyr and sacrificing herself, and no one can say anything then. She is privileged, and she knows she is. She carries the guilt. She is soft and sensitive, and she watches, watches, watches. Her intuition is deep and deft, but she doesn't know it yet, can't separate out sensitivity and intuition. She has friends. She doesn't trust the friendships. She doesn't know what friendship is. At lunch in school, she asks her group, What are we doing at the weekend? And someone replies, who's we? And she doesn't say another thing, doesn't try again to say another thing. She watches others. She takes her cues. She knows she is a leader but follows anyway. She knows she is strong but pretends to be weak, steps behind and into shadows out of fear of light, out of fear of her own light, for fear of what the power of it could do. She is aware somewhere that all of this fragmentation and insecurity is normal, just normal, and she knows that many others have it far, far worse. But everywhere she looks, she is the odd one, the soft one, the silly one, the stupid one. She is far from stupid. The misted light of November, the dim and dreeping countryside on the cusp of deep winter, was made for ghosts. For unnameable things glimpsed out of the corner of your eye, for otherworldly presences amongst the mouldering dead leaves on the ground and the unsettling caw of jackdaws in neglected graveyards. The night sky, too, feels more full of stars that betray the poppy-seed smallness of our planet in an impossibly vast cosmos and pose the momentous dilemma that either we are entirely alone in the universe or there are other forms of life out there. And what are our native ghosts 
but a version of the same mystery. Either we arrive into this world for a short while and then we are gone, and that's all there is to it, or there are other dimensions we find hard to apprehend. I'm a natural sceptic, mostly thanks to my mother. When we were little, we lived in a farmhouse without a washing machine or dryer. My mother had a lot of laundry to contend with, done in the sink or tub, using suds and a corrugated washboard. If it looked like there would be a fine, dry, early morning, she'd hang her washing out the night before on an extensive wash line erected some distance from our house. Draping great loads of laundry on the line in the depths of the night, she'd come back into the house having seen shooting stars and meteors, darting bats and white barn owls. And my father, instead of offering to hang out the washing himself, would shake his head and say, one of these nights you'll meet a ghost or the fairies will bring you. Nothing of the sort ever happened. And neither have I ever bumped into a ghost. Instead, I'm like those provincial governors in ancient China, prepared to take note of irregularities in nature, unusual weather events, popular rumours, portents and sightings in the sky and other symptoms of social and psychological disturbance, not yet in the purview of the central orthodoxy, but potentially destabilising the natural order of things. Just lately, at the top of the road that passes our front door and ends at the sea, I met a neighbour who told me he'd seen a ghost. The figure of an older man in an orangey-red jumper close to the strand where we stood, there one minute and vanished when approached. My neighbour, a down-to-earth family man, is genuinely shaken, genuinely perplexed. He's had an experience he finds it difficult to come to terms with and he needs to talk about what he's seen. I appreciate his distress. Just how do we cope with the uncanny? A woman I know left a rented cottage where she'd experienced strange sensations and glimpses of something odd and chose to move. Another young woman and her partner rented the same property after she left. The young woman woke in the night to find a big man in a checkered patterned shirt seated at the end of her bed. Discreet inquiries suggested she'd seen the deceased original owner. For several years, the back door of the same house had been locked, the key lost. Eventually, the couple found the key, and with the back door in use again, the ghost went, as if no longer held back. I find even first-hand accounts of hauntings, as plausible as this, hard to accommodate. Because if I lived in a house where I saw someone who ought to be dead, hovering in a checkered shirt at the foot of my bed, I'd have jumped out of my skin. First with fright, but also with terror and confoundment at the collapse of everything I believed in. The truth being that the almost casual adaptability 
of people to the experience of seeing ghosts stood for me as proof that they were mistaken. But then, what's to be done about seeing a ghost? It's an estranging experience. And the only part of it you have any control over is the intensity and duration of that estrangement. You've met with the dead and you still have to get on with life. Which means it really doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter whether the encounter truly happened or not with a ghost or an unidentified flying object, a fairy, an apparition, a moving statue, a leprechaun. In the writing workshops I give, I've often worked with people who've had an inexplicable encounter. Mostly, they are older people. What I consider remarkable is that the encounter may have taken place when they were children or young adults, and still they remember the experience and the strangeness of it. When so much else is forgotten, people's names, places, relatives the whereabouts of valuables, a brush with the supernatural lingers. The otherness of it occupies a lifetime. In this sense, the haunting is as real as it gets. That red fiat was to prove a great disappointment to my father. When he and my mother collected it from the garage, the salesman reminded them happily it had come all the way from Italy. Just off the assembly line, he said. It was fiery red in colour and it was to prove volatile in temperament also. My father used to drive us to school in that red fiat 128. On certain frosty days, as if sick of the cold weather and with the shrug of a diva, it would refuse to start. All muffled up in our winter coats, we'd wait, suspended, in a delicious time warp as my father turned the key in the ignition again and again. We'd hear the dying sputter of the engine, like the death rattle of a weary old nag and we'd wonder how the day was going to pan out. That recalcitrant combustion engine created a kind of crisis of conscience for us as we weighed up the idea of a day at home by the fire versus a day in the classroom. Soon, after failing to get geeks out of the engine, my father would go into the house and call my mother. She'd come out, sit in behind the steering wheel and wait for his nod. Knowing the drill, we'd all pile out of the car and take up our positions at the rear. Now put her into neutral, Ina, my father would instruct my mother. Push, he'd tell us, and we'd push for Ireland, shoving alongside him. Slowly the car would begin to move when we had it facing down the hill, he'd bang on the rear window as a signal to my mother. Put her into first, Ina. That's it. Now, take your foot off the clutch. 
and we'd stand back breathless, watch it roll silently down the road and wait for the engine to catch. If we were lucky, it would erupt into life. My mother would drive on down to the bottom of the village to warm up the engine and then drive on back up the hill as if by magic. She'd hop out, engine still running, my father would get in and off we'd go at breakneck speed in case the car gave out again, all of us waving through the rear window to our mother. That car caused all sorts of headache, whether it was a dying battery, a faulty alternator, wet plugs or a broken fan belt. When no amount of pushing worked, my father would invoke the revered name of Decky. Over the years he saw a lot of this mechanic and the two men became friends, bonding over their mutual interest in and puzzlement over engines. In time, my father switched cars. In the 80s he bought a second-hand hatchback Renault 16 with deep-sprung seats covered in beige faux leather. This car had a more robust character. Its girth and heft appealed to my father, and mostly it ran smoothly. When rusty holes began to appear in the floor, he patched them up with contact paper and old HB ice cream posters. This was long before the days of the NCT. The last car my father drove was a Toyota Corolla and it was his pride and joy. That's a great car, he'd say. Even when the locks jammed and there was mould growing up along the seams of the chassis, he'd never hear a word said against it. Who says cars are not anthropomorphic? That they don't take on the characteristics of their owners? In the end, this loyal car, which had never let him down, sat patiently outside on the tarmac, waiting for him, growing creakier by the month, a bit like himself. Finally, no longer able to drive from place to place, my father had to content himself with the sight of it sitting outside. There it remained for many years, until my father decided to let his youngest take it over. He didn't like parting with those car keys. It was like he was saying goodbye to an old friend. But he knew it was time, and so reluctantly he handed them over to her, knowing he would never drive again. Well, I left Kentucky back in 49 and went to Detroit working on assembly line. The first year they had me putting wheels. Ask people about William Butler Yeats, and the first woman's name mentioned is Maud Gonn, a rich English heiress who shared the vehemently anti Semitic prejudice of many of our British high society contemporaries, but diverged from them in adopting and immersing herself in the cause of Irish nationalism. By not reciprocating his public declarations of love, Gon provided Yeats with boundless inspiration for love poems of such power that female admirers willingly provided sexual solace to aid the poet in his self-declared romantic poetry. What Gon never seemed keen to provide him with was a home. Indeed, 
while still treating him as a friend and dog's body, Maud tried to initiate attempts to burn down his family home after he joined the first Irish Senate. He heard of her alleged attempts in a letter from his sometimes overlooked wife, George. George didn't function as a muse. Instead, during a successful marriage, she functioned as his patient, with her patience sorely tested, nursemaid, homemaker, business manager, honest editor and provider of literary and political gossip from the Dublin she had to adjust to living in with two small children while Yates travelled constantly. She also became his astute proofreader because Yates had little concept of punctuation and an inability to spell simple words. When their young family precariously lived in Tor Lee amid the dangers of civil war, it was George who painted the ceiling in shades of leftover paint because the nearest shop involved an eight-mile cycle. When the tower regularly flooded, it was George who swept away mud and worms from the ground floor while the poet remained undisturbed writing upstairs. When the IRA blew up the bridge and their two-year-old son became ill, it was George who got the boy to Dublin by train for an operation. She persuaded a local taxi driver to drive across the fields, with George and the driver needing to dismantle and rebuild every dry stone wall in their way, while the parish priest who cadged a lift remained imperiously in his seat, refusing to lend a hand. Their marriage probably seemed an unlikely union, in 1917, when the 52-year-old Yates proposed to 24-year-old George Hyde Lees, who knew she was his third choice of bride. Four years previously, Maud Gon had observed that he was thinking dangerously much about a wife, to which he replied pessimistically, a mistress cannot give one a home, and a home I shall never have. When Maud's estranged husband, Major John McBride, was executed in 1916, it spurred Yates into proposing again to Gon. After Gon rejected him, Yates startled her young daughter Iselt with a marriage proposal. Only when Iselt wisely rejected the man she regarded as an uncle figure did he focus on George. George moved on the fringe of Yates' literary circle in London, her mother was related by marriage to Olivia Shakespeare, one of Yeats's mistresses. George's best friend had married Ezra Pound, a friend of Yeats. George shared with Yeats an interest in the occult and astrology. So, although always in the shadow of her famous spouse, she proved an inspired choice, not just as a wife, but more importantly, as a highly intelligent and loving life companion. As someone immersed in theatre, Yeats knew that first nights can be fraught with stage fright. When the first night of her marriage to a man twice her age verged in the stage fright direction, George showed her mystic and practical side and created a new bond between them by engaging with him in a discourse of occult automatic writing. This free-flown practice of the subconscious provided philosophical insights for his writing, but more importantly, it created a sufficiently erotic undertow to ensure that he fathered two children. During their courtship, he addressed her in letters as My Beloved and signed himself Years With Love. These were the only false notes in their correspondence. Soon, but with no less affection, she was simply My Dear Dobbs, his pet name for her, and his letters ended, Here's Affley, W.B. Yeats. 
He wrote to send her drafts of poems and requests for fresh socks and various medicines. Maud Gone hogs the limelight as Yeats' idolised lover, but George steered him through his last decade when he wrote his greatest poems. She never sought the limelight, was under no illusions about his infidelities, and suffered moments of despair, but she deserves to be celebrated in her own light as his soulmate, whose opinion he trusted the most. When Yeats spent 20 minutes trying to locate an electric socket for the barber who came to shave him, it was George who reminded him that the Ratfarnham house didn't possess electricity. Maybe she wasn't amused, but are not braining him at such moments, perhaps she came closer to being a saint. Trist. The clocks are striking eight around the town. I stare along O'Connell Bridge, willing her silhouette to get here soon. I mutter my lines like Jaquiz's lover, sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrows. A shiver creeps in my scarf and down my jumper, each minute till 8.30, 45, and 9. But I have visualised our brief encounter so intensely that when I cross the bridge to go back to my rooms resigned, I pass our doppelgangers as they watch the liffy and quiver at my fleeting ghost to whom they owe their moment of existence. phone calls, tweets, crisscross frequencies. All year you made your net in the air above the town. Against the current they came, bards, poets, storytellers of all kinds, meeting, separating, meeting again. Children chalked their myths under our feet. There was talk of vision quests, scythes, many shapes, and fun the secrets he learned from Finnegus. Fire of song, light of knowledge, art of extempore recitation. We sang an Aboriginal song to the rocks at Man Falls, dived into the pool. Sacred hazels, gold and silver scales, our finned throats, our tails. 
On this morning's programme, we heard Visiting Dylan Thomas's Home Place by Gerald Dahl, Teenager by Mia Doring, Ghostly Encounters by Brian Layden, Car Troubles by Catherine Foley, In Her Own Light by Dermot Bulger, Trist, a poem by James Harper, and Net, a poem by Lanny O'Hanlon. The music was Captain Cat and His Drowned Sailors from Under Milk Wood by Dylan Thomas, performed by Karis Matthews. A Lost Girl from the soundtrack to The Secret Garden by Dario Marianelli. King of the Fairies by Jean-Luc Lenoir. One Piece at a Time by Johnny Cash. The Falling of the Leaves, a Yeats poem set to music by Raymond Driver and sung by Eleanor Shanley with Kevin Burke. And The Clock by Paul Simon. And it's the season for new books. All the writers this morning have recent books out. Dermot Bulger's latest book is Other People's Lives. Gerald Dawes new collection is Another Time, Poems 1978 to 2023. Brian Layden's new novel is Love These Days. Catherine Foley's new poetry collection is Auron Schrodvalia, Village Song. Lanny O'Hanlon's debut poetry collection, Landscape of the Body, will be launched tomorrow evening in Waterstones in Cork. James Harper's debut novel is The Pathless Country, shortlisted for the John McGahern Prize. And Mia Doreen's memoir is Annie Girl. And that script of Mia's, Teenager, is included in Sunday Miscellany, a selection 2018 to 2023, which has just been published by New Island Books. And Sunday Miscellany's Christmas programmes will be recorded next month in not one but two live events with the RTE Concert Orchestra. The first is in the National Concert Hall, as is the annual tradition, on the evening of Tuesday the 5th of December with writers including Angela Flannery, Paul Howard and Michael Harding. See nhc.ie. And the following night, Wednesday the 6th of December, Sunday Miscellany and the RTE Concert Orchestra will have a second Christmas concert in Wexford at the National Opera House, with writers including Claire Keegan, Paul Rouse and Joe Brennan. For tickets to that event, see nationaloperahouse.ie. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.